0: The following podcast contains explicit language.
1: You admit here today to seeing headline after headline about health problems, hair loss, rashes, E. coli, bacteria, sewage, Legionnaire's disease. Did you read any of those stories, Governor Schneider? Congressman, I read a number of those stories. What I would tell you is those stories. All right. What
2: we well, you're listening to you right now. And- is from a congressional hearing in Washington, D.C. earlier in March. Rick Snyder, the governor of Michigan, has come under a lot of fire for his response to the ongoing water crisis in Flint. And this is Congressman Matt Cartwright from Pennsylvania dragging Snyder for filth. Governor
1: Snyder, plausible deniability only works when it's plausible. And I'm not buying that you didn't know about any of this until October 2015. You were not in a medically induced coma for a year, And I've had about enough of your false contrition and your phony apologies. Susan Hedman from the EPA bears not one-tenth of the responsibility of the state of Michigan and your administration, and she resigned. And there you are, dripping with guilt, but drawing your paycheck, hiring lawyers at the expense of the people, and doing your dead level best to spread accountability to others, and not being accountable. It's not appropriate. Pretty soon, we will have men who strike their wives saying, I'm sorry, dear, but there were failures at all levels.
2: By now, you know the big details of the water crisis in Flint. For at least a year, residents in that poor, mostly black town in central Michigan have been sounding the alarm that something was dangerously wrong with their water, that it was making them sick. But no one was listening. So that's what we're talking about on this episode. You're listening to the post Bougie Podcast. I'm Gene Demby, here with my co-host, Okoto Aforiata. We wanted to get to some of the larger questions raised by the story in Flint. And so we looked for context from some of the people we know who follow this stuff. First, we talked to Bretton and Mott. And if you don't know B, he's been covering issues of environmental discrimination for years. He's currently a writer at CityLab. And B told us that the term environmental racism, I'm doing quotes because you can't see it, is actually fairly new but the idea that black people are more likely to live in places with undrinkable water and dirty air goes back all the way to the early 1900s
3: it's funny the term environmental racism which was created in in like sometime in the 70s by Ben Chavis, a.k.a. Ben Muhammad, a.k.a. the minister in the movie <laughs> Belly. Um, like, he, he, was, he was the actual dude that came up with that term. These uh, protests that happened in Warren County, North Carolina, when a black rural community was uh, basically fighting off a decision made by the state to deposit all of this, this tainted dirt in a landfill like right near their homes. When he came up with that term, it was it was such a controversial term that like basically like the civil rights activists decided that they had to come up with another wow. term. Um which which is how we got to environmental justice. Environmental racism apparently was like Wait, way why too was radical. it so radical?
2: Like what was what was uh-uh. the thing that made it so radioactive for people?
3: So that thing happened in that little lull. You know, basically, I mean, it's the 70s, the Civil Rights Act, the new civil right, the latest Civil Rights Act has passed, the Voting Rights Act has passed, the Fair Housing Act has passed. So I don't know. Maybe people thought, well, racism is solved, so we can't use the word racism anymore. (laughs) This Warren County thing pops up, and then Benjamin Chavis pops up, and he's saying environmental racism. For, For whatever reason, that was a controversial term. And activists within that group decided, well, we'll use environmental justice as perhaps a more acceptable term. But the irony here is, is that there have been two articles that have come out about Flint, one from the New Yorker, one from the New York Times, that very clearly use, uses the right, word yeah. environmental mm-hmm. racism. So I remember reading that, and I was like, oh, so, so now it's finally safe to say environmental <laughs> racism. Because um, back then, it was, you, know, they, you know, activists were trying to make moves, and they were actually trying to get an office of environmental racism in the federal government, you know, this was during the Carter administration or the George Bush administration, the first George Bush. You know, to his credit, he was he was on board with it. But you know, they were like, environmental racism is a little bit too. Uh, I don't know that we can create an office like that mm-hmm. in the federal government, but we will create an office of environmental justice. That was a more acceptable term. But in terms of the evolution, I mean, you could start it at Warren County in the '70s, or you could start it like way back in the beginning of the of the. Uh, 20th century, like literally in the first decade of the 20th century, when W.B. Du Bois came out with the Philadelphia study. I'm embarrassed that I don't know this because, you know,
2: but what is the Philadelphia study?
3: So he this was one of his first like major sociological studies where he literally encamped in Philadelphia's ghettos. And he wrote an entire study about the conditions in those ghettos and gave the reasons for, for why they were as, like, you know, disintegrated as they were. You know, some of that study was about, like, the, the water there. It was just, like, not only is it not plentiful for black people living in these um, areas, but the water that they do get access to is is, is full of crap, right? It's full of pollutants and stuff. This was one of the first like major city studies done, period, of any soci- sociologist in the twentieth century. Um, but he was one of the first people to point out that like black people are not getting. He was he was one to point out to say like, look, like these neighborhoods look like crap. There's trash everywhere. There's waste everywhere. Nobody's managing that waste. It's getting in the water. It's getting in the the soil. This is having an effect on black people who live in here. It's affecting them emotionally. It's affecting them mentally. And, you know, he didn't come up with the term environmental racism, but everything he described in the Philadelphia study was, like, basically the underpinning of what we know today to be as environmental racism, environmental justice. I mean, you can start a day. I mean, we can start it back to slavery. We can go all the way back to Africa. I mean, I don't (laughs) It's just wherever wherever there's people of color, like, they don't want them to have water for whatever reason.
0: I I don't want to ask you, to like predict, but, like, do we have a sense of, like, how this is going to end when it comes to—I'm not hopeful that, like, people will be held accountable on all these things, but, like, what—do we have a sense of, like, what is going to happen to the residents of Flint?
3: Uh, we don't. I, I could come up with hundreds of historical accounts of, again, like, starting from Philadelphia and then moving to, like, all—across the South, um, where Black communities, Black settlements, were either cut off from water supplies from, like, a city that they may have been drawing water from, or, like, the water that they were getting was in such deplorable conditions that it really wasn't safe. I mean, D.C. itself has its own history of this. I mean, a lot of the places across in both the Potomac and the Anacostia, you know, that we see people boating in and swimming in today used to be, like, completely unsafe, for anything you know for swimming in for for drinking from from fishing in and a lot of the river embankments of DC historically used to be filled with like poor black people even like like what we know as Georgetown like we see Georgetown as being this rich white wealthy area but back before that became annexed on the DC i mean that that used to just be like a, this like woody area where a lot of people who today would be considered vagrants or homeless or whatever, like basically used to just like camp out and like they bathed in it, they washed in it, but that water was filthy. as I mean, it was crap. I mean, it really was crap. So I mean, there's and there's any number of, of historical precedents for this, but nothing that you can't really compare the history to today because today there's this whole other movement of water privatization in terms of municipal utilities that's going on like a lot of things, the water utility business used to be something that was managed and operated by cities and still are, still is for the most part. But cities, you know, as they become budget strapped, as, you know, as population explodes, they start to realize that either they, they can't manage it anymore or they can't operate it anymore or both because cities just don't have the resources to do it. And so there are a number of private companies that are basically just trolling for cities that have, you know, reached this point, they have reached the zenith. They reach, like, their, uh, you know, they've they've reached the point where they realize, like, they, they, they don't have the resources to operate anymore. And these companies want to come and buy the water management utility operations from the city and, and say, like, they'll just run it, right? And then you'll have like a, either a public private partnership or like it's just completely handed over to a private company altogether. And, and this is a global phenomenon. You know, as population and consumption expands, the mechanisms for cleaning water are not expanding at the same rate. I mean, this is the kind of thing that, like, most deaf rapped about in uh, his first New out- World Water. Yeah. yeah, New World Water. I mean, this yeah, is... Yeah, that's literally what I was just thinking about, yeah. Yeah, like, he... This is like a real, you know, water is about to be the new oil. Um, so anyway, yeah, there's, there's companies that are, you know, they're just trolling through America looking for cities like Flint. So they could come in and say like, hey, I noticed that you don't really know what you're doing or you don't really have the money to, you know, control your water management or infrastructure anymore. Let us come in and do it. Just contract with us. If anything, I, I, I could probably see that happening in Flint. The city of Flint, with its shrinking population, does not have the resources to you know adequately upgrade its water system let alone sustain it manage it operate it um the state barely has enough resources to do it epa you know ain't no money moving because of what our congress looks like Mm -hmm. so i mean this is i mean you know this is the reason why privatization is popping up in a lot of circumstances beyond water infrastructure but it's definitely like a a huge increasing trend in the water, the water utility industry, and, that, and that's why I can't really compare it to his, to his, you know, to history because throughout most of history, you know, managing water was a purely municipal or right. state
2: state operated thing, and we're in a completely new era. There's been a lot of people, most notably Kevin Drum at Mother Jones, has been writing about um, right. the extent to which you know a lot of people, a lot of criminologists and sociologists believe that the reason there was so much violent crime in the united states you know in the 70s and 80s and the early 90s was because of lead exposure and that part of the reason we saw such a big crime drop after that um, was because people were growing up in cities that uh, did not have uh, they were where they were not being exposed to lead in their pipes and their paint and stuff like that. Um, and so part of what we...
0: it's just crazy.
2: It's crazy. I mean, so we should say that that's, that that science is really contested. I mean, and there's a lot of theories for why crime dropped over the last 20 years or so. But one of the one of yeah, the that, that,
3: that part's not contested. What you say? So the the actual the epidemiology around like whether like you know long term exposure to lead as a child, leads to, you know, for lack of a better term, violent behavior sure. later in life. That particular set of science is not largely uncontested.
2: Right, that's that's not controversial. Yeah. But the idea is the whether lead is the major driver of the, the or lack of exposure yeah, of lead yeah, yeah, is yeah. the major driver for the crime drop is one of the things that, you know, has come up a lot of people have been talking about that over the last couple of years. Um, I talked to some sociologists last year at length about that and they were sort of saying like, well, there's some compelling circumstantial evidence that, you know, that the, the timeline looks sort of the same. That like when stuff started being phased out, that you see, um, right. you see the when crime he... drop. But you also this is also true that like in cities that didn't necessarily have lead problems, that you saw the crime drop too. Yeah.
3: No, yeah, you're right. That part is contested. Um, what what people like Drum and the researchers are pointing to, or the main thing that they're pointing to, is you know gasoline used to be you know heavily laden with lead that's why you know today we have what's called unleaded gasoline Mm -hmm. that was a decision made by epa and i want to say the early 80s you know um that lead had to be removed from gasoline and so there are researchers that say the inertia of that decision led to the drop drop in crime when you took lead out of gasoline which made everybody exposed to it then Especially in like cities that had a lot of cars and trucks, like New York City, Mm -hmm. and that's when you saw that drop in crime. Mm -hmm. And that part, that part is that part still is contested, yes. But when you also, but when you look at cities like Flint, and again, like all the cities across the Rust Belt, Mm -hmm. lead exposure wasn't limited to just what kids were or what people were exposed to um, when pumping gas in their cars. That Mm -hmm. would make sense in a place like Flint and Detroit because that you know that's automobile Mm -hmm. university basically. Right. right. There's also this whole fact of like the lead in the paint. If you look at a city like Flint, a lot of the housing stock was built before the 1950s, um, which, you know, when paint was heavily uh, laden with lead, um, there was another decision in the 50s that that, you know, again, that where you had to use alternative paints that did not have lead in it. But when you look at like the housing stock, you have to really look at the housing stock of cities. This is true in Baltimore, Pittsburgh. It's it's true in Philadelphia. You have a lot of, any place where there's a a really old housing stock, Mm -hmm. you pretty much are certain to have like a huge exposure to lead, especially for like chipping paint and stuff like that.
0: I mean, weren't there several like lead abatement programs that some communities were were able to get to reduce the amount of lead in these old houses that people, that communities of color were locked out of?
3: Yeah, so, you know, EPA gets created in 1970 and or around that time, and, and, you know, these are one of the things that they're tasked with dealing with, and, e, you know, EPA even today has, like, an office completely dedicated to lead remediation, um, but, wow. but as for a lot of things, you know, not everything that the federal government creates is, is created for everybody, so there are cities that apply for a lead abatement or lead remediation grant from EPA either you know for EPA to come in and do it or have some other scientists come in and do it if it you know if, if there's a, a a community a black community in that city you know maybe they don't you know that grant doesn't cover them you know people don't go in and they don't refurbish those houses they don't go in and do the abatement in the soil and the paint or anything like that um, And then you got, like, outlier communities, like, again, like these suburbs or these quasi-suburban spots where black people end up settling Mm -hmm. off because they can't get into the city because of, you know, whatever, you know, segregation laws are are in existence. And so those communities, they, you know, they might be unincorporated, so they're automatically cut off from these things. Or it's just like, again, like, it's just known as, like, that's that poor black community out there, so we just won't touch it.
2: This is going to have a really long tail. We don't even know with the fallout, the full fallout this going to be. We might not know for another 15, or 16 years, you know? like,
3: And it, I mean, the really bad part of this, or one of the bad parts of this is, this is where you realize, like, how little rights or how little value that black people have in America. Because if black people were trees or animals in this situation, um, we could put a dollar amount mm-hmm. on this, right? So anytime a disaster happens, there's a process, a federal process mm-hmm. called NERDA. So this happened after the BP oil spill where the federal government comes in and they do an audit and basically look at everything that was harmed by that disaster. And then for the BP oil spill, they came in, they looked at everything impacted by contact with the oil, but only looking at, like, animals, plants, water, habitat, environment, things like that. And then they study it and they put a dollar amount on it. Mm -hmm. They say, like, this plant habitat was affected. It's going to take a long time for that to be restored and we're going to put a dollar amount on that. And that's called the nerder process, natural resource mm-hmm. damage assessment. There's no damage assessment for people <laughs> in a situation like this. You know, like somebody should be in there right now saying everybody who came in contact with this foul water is going to be impacted in this way or that way. Right. need to put a dollar amount on it. And then that dollar amount in the nerder process doesn't just, it's not like an abstract thing that sits on a coffee table, that ends up figuring into the, you know, the actual legal trial that happens. Right. And, you know, the settlement is based off of what scientists came up with in their narrative process. But what do we have for Black people in this
2: situation? We don't have anything. Look, you know, you can talk about intention, right? You can talk about intent, whether people were doing this because they because they were trying to get out to get Black people. Or you could talk about just what the sort of the accretion of decisions that are made that have an impact that falls on a bunch of poor black people. Right. Um, and that's, that's always sort of how it goes, right? right? It's never like one person sitting and twirling their mustache or, or it, I should say it often isn't. (laughs) Um, it often isn't one person sitting and twirling their mustache and trying to do something completely devious. What's more likely to happen is that a bunch of people make a bunch of decisions um, that are short-sighted or that are self-serving. Well,
3: I mean, under, under environmental justice policy, intent doesn't even matter, right? Like, if there's a disparate impact, you know, on race, you know, this is affecting, you know, black people or people of color in general um, in ways that it's not affecting white people, then you have, under the Civil Rights Act in 1964, then you have, you know, you have a violation. With this, since this was a kind of municipal state decision, you can't, I don't know that I don't know if you can apply the civil rights act to this so the civil rights act applies if any of these entities were using federal funds for the water supply mm-hmm. I don't I don't know from what I understand this might have just been a local state decision so civil rights act might not apply here you know but in hmm. general if just like morally and ethically Intent shouldn't matter. Right. Like you're, you're screwing a population that has been screwed by government decisions, you know, throughout mm-hmm. since America was America. And so, you know, that should be part of the calculus. And EPA, mm-hmm. they know Flint. You know, like uh, we have uh, the Center for Public Integrity's Talia Buford, who's from Flint, Michigan. She just did a story. Talia, I mean, Talia did some great reporting about how, you know, EPA has not been like living up, well, really no agency has been living up to as part of the bargain on the Civil Rights Act. But the EPA, you know, they did do, there was a title, there was a Civil Rights Act complaint registered there. It didn't have to do with the water, it actually had to do with the air, it was an air permit. But still, like, EPA people, they, it's not It's not like they don't know <laughs> that right. what's going on in Flint. They've been in Flint. They know what's there, and they should have been more on top of this. You know, when the city and state is falling down on their job, that's when the federal government is supposed to kick in, and
2: they they didn't kick in this time. After Brenton mentioned Talia's reporting, we decided, obviously, that we should hit her up.
0: My name is Talia Buford. I'm an environment and labor reporter at the Center for Public Integrity. I'm from Flint, Michigan.
2: And for a few years, also, T was my upstairs neighbor. We went to dinner a few weeks ago and she was telling me about a recent trip home to Michigan and how she had to load 500 bottles of water into her mom's car. And she said that the city had told her mom at this point that the water on her mom's block should be fine. But her mom, for obvious reasons, doesn't really trust the city. Anyway, last year, Talia and the folks at the Center for Public Integrity did this big series called Environmental Justice Denied. And in it, they found that over the last two decades plus, there have been hundreds and hundreds of complaints to the Civil Rights Office of the Environmental Protection Agency. And never has any of those complaints to the Civil Rights Office of the EPA ever resulted in a formal finding of discrimination.
0: It's a dismal record. Over, you know, decades, there have been only a handful of cases that they've actually, they've, they've done anything and they've even, you know, kind of investigated and for the most part cases are dismissed. Um, but one of the very early and, and very important cases actually was in Flint. And um, it involved a, a steel mill that was actually never built, but it was slated for a an industrial park in the in the unincorporated like you know county area right next to the city, mm-hmm. which is something that I guess a lot of these uh, these facilities do they'll be positioned in a place that is in the county not near a lot of people who live in the county okay. but across the street is the city okay. And so the city is, you know, probably black-brown, you mm-hmm. know. So, But they don't have to then kind of take into account the the emissions from, from that are going to go into the city there because they're in the county. Right, right, right.
2: They're right on the other side of the border. Exactly. So it's, it's no one's problem.
0: Exactly. And so, you know, so we wrote wrote the story about that, and, and, and there's another case there that is actually still pending from the early 90s involving a power plant there. Um, and one of the biggest things that I took out of reporting the series is that this avenue that people have to pursue a Title VI complaint, a lot of people don't know that they have it. Um, and then, even if they do pursue it, nothing happens. Right. You know, and and in in that sense, it's almost like the same thing that happens in a, in a Title VI case, you know, a civil rights case, happened in Flint. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember when I was reading some of the the more recent stories. I believe it was uh, five thirty eight. They did a, a really big story, just kind of about the things that went wrong in Flint, and they they talked about. So many of these people who, you know, were gathering their own samples, testing their own water, you know, sending it out for, you know, learning all of this science Mm -hmm. just so that they could know that the city was lying to them, basically. People were doing this in their
2: own homes.
0: Well, yeah, yeah. And they they were, you know, collecting the water and they were sending it off for testing or whatever. And that is a that's a thing that happens in so many of the other communities that we that we saw. Like, wow. These people become experts in things that, that they should never have to know. Like, I mean, you know, we require to know these things. It's great if they do, but, you know, it's just like they are sitting there and they're having to prove themselves, mm-hmm. you know, to say, no, 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 you should actually believe right. that the water that is coming out of my faucet is brown. Like, it mm-hmm. is toxic waste, literally. Mm-hmm. And I know that a lot of uh, the standards and, and the testing and the the samples that the government actually accepts when they look at you know toxicity and different things like that it's there's a very specific there's a very small set of things that they will actually accept and so a lot of the times they don't accept the the samples that people from the public have collected
2: right so you're saying that they would <clears throat> uh they would accept it if it were from it was from say a researcher from a university or from some other sort of maybe
0: yeah but if it's just me and even if i follow all the protocols
2: mm-hmm. they're
0: like who are you
2: right and then it's sort of like compounds they live in a city where they have this emergency manager who gets to decide these things right they can't vote on that person and then they can't invade mm-hmm. you know they can't sort of importune <clears throat> the federal government to take a stand in this because they're not sufficiently credentialed or whatever because
0: the government's saying that that you don't know what you're talking yeah, about. Yeah, exactly, exactly. You don't know what you're talking about. It's so funny because it's like, I'm reading a lot of these stories about Flint. This is kind of off topic or whatever. I'm reading all these stories about Flint and they're talking about, you know, like obviously all the disenfranchisement with the emergency manager and everything. And that's really not the Flint that I know mm-hmm. at all. Like I remember, like my mom was, um, like we were, sure at the newspaper every day. Like we voted, like we were, it was like, I, you know, canvassed for, you know, city counselor when I was in, like, you know, elementary school Mm -hmm. as a part of Girl Scouts and stuff. So it was like, you know, we are like civically is that gay? legal
2: you probably just out of somebody you probably can't
0: I mean I was it was number one it was for a merit badge and okay. I passed out
2: <laughs> some, <laughs> some I don't think the Girl Scouts can conscript you into campaigning for somebody
0: no it was it was not they said you could just you just had to be you had to do something I forgot what it was exactly maybe maybe I also just <laughs> stuff ballots I mean, she you got know, a
2: ballot stuffing badge whatever, from the whatever.
0: Flint now is very different from the Flint that I grew up
2: in mm-hmm. can you sort of lay out this contrast
0: okay so
2: Shout out to Mateen Cleaves. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and Ready for the World. <laughs> it was like this, Brenton
2: mentioned Ready for the World, too.
0: Brenton loves Flint. And Dayton family. Oh, All Dayton of them. family. All of them.
2: We're going to drop some of their audio into
0: this. Yes.
2: I'm waking up in the morning with problems on my mind. Motherfucker education.
0: It's weird because it's like Flint was like low middle class to middle class. Mm-hmm. But. It didn't matter. Like, everybody was kind of on the same playing field. Right. Because everybody worked at the shop. Mm-hmm. And so it just kind of mattered, you know, like... you whether... say the shop, you mean? Oh, at General Motors okay. or at, in a factory or in, you know, an automotive. Like, so Flint had Buick City, which was like this hulking, you know, like, maybe four or five city blocks long, you know, factory, like, complex. Like, I remember my mom talking about... She worked at, at General Motors... I'm at Buick City and at several different plants. Um, talking about they would have to take, you know, some they had like um I forgot what they called them, maybe maybe prep cars or something like that, that they would drive just on the lot. And so it was because it was so far and you had to go like halfway across the town or whatever to get mm-hmm. to the other factory or whatever. And um so you had this huge complex. Everybody worked there. But that was like what you did. Like mm-hmm. you came there like people came like my mom came from mississippi people come up there part of the great migration and you got a job at the factory got a job at the factory and you were set you know it was a union Mm -hmm. there was you know really good wages um it was good work it was solid work um you know you got two weeks off in the summer when they you know did the the, the reset for the (laughs) the model reset that's what's up it was nice yeah um and so the only difference was really your responsibilities within your home because sure. everybody made the same money right right and that makes sense. yeah and so i don't think i was poor i know that there were times when we had less like i remember when we went on strike and you know we were on welfare and you know there were different things like that i remember i remember times but it wasn't like oh well talia's you know having a hard time it's like not nah, everybody, everybody having yes, time right, a hard because right, right. it was an industry it's, town everybody exactly yeah. exactly i so yeah i just remember it being like a very regular upbringing like i mean i i didn't ride a bike but you know what i'm saying like people rode bikes i can ride a bike now i can ride a bike now that's so
2: funny for the entire length of the time that i've known to <laughs> been many years now <laughs> She could not ride a bike.
0: I learned to ride a bike a couple of years ago. That's what's up. Okay. I have not ridden it recently. Anyway, um, we lived um on the on the corner. Like there was a one house on the corner, and it was our house. And we lived at the top of a little small hill. It was like you know two bedroom house, like you know basement and you know whatever. Not a huge house. Mm. Um, <clears throat> and um, we lived across from a field. And I remember like kids playing football in the field in the you know summertime and like somebody putting a a milk crate on a tree and playing Playing basketball basketball. you know like i was playing double dutch you know in the in the street like it was a regular like urban upbringing or whatever and it wasn't there were like only certain things that i kind of noticed that i knew that maybe we lived in not a great neighborhood or maybe like not a great city mm-hmm. <laughs> you know whatever one was when i went to college mm-hmm. and i told people i was from flint <clears throat> and then people only knew a few a few like touchstones about flint they know michael moore, michael
2: moore right Roger and and me, right they
0: know roger and me mm-hmm. and um they know that for uh, they're like oh most dangerous you know city in the in the country i was gonna ask
2: you about that yeah right mm-hmm.
0: and so i mean that's a whole other thing because People think like, ah, oh, like you just walk out in flint, you just, just get shot. Just, you know? <laughs> like, people just, just shoot every day. Like yeah. and it's like, no, it's not how it is. One is per capita. We have we're a very small Small city. city. Mm-hmm. So, you know Over a
2: hundred thousand but not much more.
0: Exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so it's like, you know, obviously that that takes into account. But it's always so like, no, I did not feel like I was gonna get shot. Do I know people who got shot? Sure. Sure. Do I know, you know, that there was shooting happening? Yeah.
2: This is just as an aside, this is the thing that always comes up when we have conversations about like black poverty and yada yada. I don't think people understand it, that, like, even among poor black folks, that the, like, risk is not spread equally. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, it wasn't like, like, I grew up in a bad or not a great neighborhood. Mm-hmm. But, like, there were people who were, like, and maybe in the aggregate, I was at risk, like, compared to the rest of the world. But I was not at risk compared to the dudes on my block. On you know oh, every saying? day.
0: Like, because you weren't out there <laughs> exactly. with the people
2: with guns. <laughs> exactly. You're like, right.
0: oh, you're with guns? Cool. I'm exactly. going to be over here. Right.
2: Like You know, people are still people, you know, in those spaces with all sorts of degrees of advantage mm-hmm. and disadvantage anyway, yeah
0: sorry and it's also it's, it's just, like yeah. it, it was so my mom um owned our house mm-hmm. and we knew the neighbors like we knew everybody down right. the street you know like her friends were down the street so it was like
2: you were from a community with we a,
0: had a community yeah. and like, now
2: so things um, have obviously changed
0: things have changed okay so, so what happened to your neighbors One, you know, they were older, so some of them died, Mm -hmm. Uh, some of them moved away. Mm -hmm. Um, The neighborhood became much more transient, Mm -hmm. Um, and so we got a lot of renters or just new people, and then a lot of people moved away and abandoned the houses. Mm -hmm. So when I got home, I would come home from college or whatever, and um, people would look at me like I was a stranger.
2: Right, because they didn't know you. Because they didn't
0: know me. Right. Right. And then I come, you know, with my car. I drive home, you know, from Virginia, and I got, Virginia you know, plates. Virginia. Like I have Mississippi place. So that's a whole other story. But I have Mississippi plates. <laughs> oh my gosh. And they're like, I'm like, yo, they're gonna break in my car.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: like, this is a legit. Like, I mean, because I mean, yeah, my neighborhood wasn't bad, but I still knew, like, mm-hmm. our house still got broken into, Short like, place. when I was when I was in, Same. you know, high school or whatever. So I mean, I knew that things weren't perfect, but I'm like. Oh no 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 no! Let me park first, ma. You pull behind me, mm-hmm. like so. It's it's like so. I still had to be aware of that, but so like the the, the neighbors. I mean, the so one we don't have as many neighbors. Mm-hmm. Um, so there are these people on the streets. Um, the neighbors we do have, I don't think my mother talks to them. Um, the, there are a couple people who are still there from like when um, that, are, that just have been there, just like she has or whatever. But A lot of people have just died. Mm-hmm. Um, the abandoned houses, either the city didn't have the money to tear them down. So um
2: <clears throat> So they're just sitting there well with weeds like growing up in and...
0: Well, that would be better. Uh, um so in some cases that's what happened. Then they would get set on fire. Um there'll be squatters and drugs or whatever. And uh then the city started tearing them down, um and having these big lots.
2: So you have uh occupied house, lot 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 lot, occupied house.
0: My mother is a perfect example. Mm-hmm. So house on the on the corner, my mama's house. There was an empty, um, my neighbor's house, um, their house uh, got, it was abandoned. and got torn down. She was like, all right, I'm going to buy this lot. So she bought the lot for like $5 or something ridiculous wow. or whatever. So we have two lots now. Then the people next to that, they abandoned that house. She was like, I'm going to buy that lot too. <laughs> so she bought that lot. So it's literally like, actually there's an, an empty house now on the corner because the woman who lived there died. Mm-hmm. Our house two empty lots that my mother takes care of and then I think another house I'm not sure if it's abandoned at this point or not like I just don't remember the last time that I was I was there or not and whether there are people there and so it's it feels less like a community and more like like a ghost town or like like the wild west almost because it's mm-hmm. just like land mm-hmm. it's like land and then, abandoned uh, house you know <laughs> like all these crazy things but yeah so I mean so that's one thing. So, like, just the makeup of communities has is, is changed. There were, like, there were like, like, people were throwing out plans of, like, abandoning the outer skirts of the city and kind of, like, just focusing on Center City, which is also ridiculous. Mm-hmm. They've, the city has um, drastically cut a lot of the city services. Mm-hmm. Um, when I was a kid and our house got broken into, it would still take, like, a long time for the police to come and check on our, our house or whatever. Now, they don't at all. Wow! Like it's because they're they just aren't they don't have the the manpower to come in, like investigate you know your broken house like right. that's not a thing that's a, that's that's the most important thing that they can do right now, um, and um, my mother has to pay, f- to keep our like the street lights on.
2: Wow! She to, your mom has to pay. Your mom has to pay
0: for this. Like all of the individual residents on the street, if you want street lights. And, and this is like how she explained it to me. So hopefully I'm getting this right. But how she explained it to me is that if you have street light if you want streetlights on your street, like the people on that street have to be assessed a particular fee and they have to pay that fee. And if somebody decides not to pay it or whatever, then y'all don't get lights. Right. I just remember her being like, I got to pay for the street lights And I was
2: like. So it sounds so. like you could have this patchwork system where like you can go from block to block and one block might have lights and the next block.
0: Right, Might which not. makes it a lot more dangerous. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: Wow. Yeah. So let me ask you, why is, why does your mom want to stay there? I mean, it's her house. <laughs> it's her house. And she bought it.
0: It's her house. Mm-hmm. It's her house. So my mom, she's um, in her late 60s, and um, she bought this house. Like, this is a house that she bought. She raised her kids in it. Mm-hmm. Um, me, my sister, my brother, we all grew up there and um it's her house like i mean it it's not lavish it's it's a very um modest house um
2: but it's her house it's her
0: house mm. it's her house and it's also like sell it and do what sell it and go where yeah like like she's spent the last what f- 40 <laughs> years of her life in this space mm-hmm. so you want her to what just uproot we tried <gasps> oh, lord we tried <laughs> and, but it but it, that's just it's her house. It's her house. She's just keep. She's just taking care of it mm-hmm. or whatever. And so, she hated it in Auburn Hills. She was like, "I'm gonna go back to my house." She went back to her house, and we've been, you know, cleaning it up. You know, she just got the kitchen done, all these other things or whatever. Um, but she, it, it's not as easy as one just saying, "Why don't you move?" Mm-hmm. and I think there's a number of reasons why I now understand that like one just kind of the, the psychic reasons of you know having to abandon a home that you build on and the, and the thing that you have the one thing that you have in you know the world or whatever it's like that was yours mm-hmm. you want me to just give it up
2: and you think about all these people who came up through the make great, great Migration right mm-hmm. I mean they are adhering to the American dream right they're doing right. the thing they're supposed to do you're supposed to go mm-hmm. get a job Get a house, provide for your family. She did yeah. all of those things. She held up her end of the bargain.
0: Definitely, you know what I mean. Definitely, and now she can't even drink the water yeah. that is coming out of her faucet. So I mean, there's a lot of reasons, and and I think that's the thing. Like people, the people who could leave Flint have left. Mm-hmm. You know, they have left. That's why our population has dropped so much. Um, so it's like the people who are left there are people who either. You know, they're older, Mm -hmm. or um, there are some other, like, reason that they are tied to that area or to that region, um, or they don't have the means to do it. Mm -hmm. You know, especially now that, that GM isn't there anymore. Sure. You know, like, where are you working? Like, you know, maybe at the hospital, maybe, you know, some other job or whatever, maybe construction or something like that. But there's no other industry that has really replaced GM on the scale that it needs to be in order for the city to be stable like so say you bought a house in flint um at you know when you were you know 40 years ago mm-hmm. bought a house modest house whatever not crazy you try to sell it try to sell a house i could pull up zillow right now and probably buy a house for ten thousand dollars in flint wow. like i mean it's that bad like you you can get a house for like the houses are worth nothing mm-hmm. there so it's like yeah you sell the house and what i don't get any money for right, it right, right. <laughs> so what am i gonna do now
2: sure do you worry about Flint's long-term future, like, as a viable city? I mean, if it doesn't have an industry and it doesn't have a... I mean, if if everyone is leaving, if everyone's left who can leave, I'm assuming you're not going back. No, <laughs> um, I'm not. And the mayor, who Brenton talked to, said that, you know, she expressed some concern that people would be leaving. More people would leave because of the water crisis. Yeah, you think? Um, so I'm curious, like, are you...
0: Do I worry that Flint will no you, longer exist? Or it'll be a ghost town, or...
2: I mean, it won't be, a, it, it'll, it'll never be a ghost town, but it's like, does it, I know how I feel when I go home to Philly, which is still a really vital city, but, like, how I feel when I go home and my home is not there anymore. Like, it's mm-hmm. not, doesn't exist anymore. My schools are closed, and you know what I mean? Um, I wonder, like, do you feel some type of rootlessness?
0: I think when I go home now and things have changed, or I see something, I'm like, oh. Like, I remember, I remember when I came home uh, my first year at college and they tore down Buick City. Mm-hmm. And um, I was driving by and I saw like this literal, like gaping hole in the city and I had to pull over and I cried. And cause I was just like, yo, what? Like, what do you, what, what is happening? I don't understand. Like cause the fact that it was still there kind of was like, okay, this, okay, no one's working there, <laughs> but it's still there. And it was like, no, 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 no this is real. They're not coming back, mm-hmm. you know, or whatever. And so, and so I think, any morning that I've that I have done or will do for Flint, I've probably already done it because so much has already been taken from us. Um, I think once that happened and kind of um, and then I didn't spend as much time in Flint, um, Flint became like home became less about the city and more just about like, you know, my mom and about the house and about. You know my friends that are there or whatever um how often do you go back i go back i mean honestly like once a year and i try to go back maybe two or three times now that um like my mom's Looking getting older, older. Yeah. so but yeah I, I don't know if i'm like when i it's like hard for me to even say this like i don't like you know like when my when my mom is no longer there then there won't be a reason for me to go back sure like so then it'll be like yeah i'm from flint but I'll I'll go home to I'll go to Detroit or something for the holidays because that's where my sister and that's where my family will be. Sure. You know, so um she's the real tie to Flint sure. right now for me and um it, it's 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 I mean it's obviously frustrating um and kind of weird uh to have this kind of be the the end of this legacy. Mm-hmm. You know, or whatever or whatever memory or, or space that Flint ends up occupying in, you know, my life or in, you know, my mind or whatever, it's 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 very odd for it to, to kind of have taken this trajectory for me. I get a little, I got a little bit indignant a lot of times when, uh, a couple of years ago, when people were paying all this attention to Detroit, when Detroit was like Panning. not having all their problems sure. or whatever. And I felt, I felt real petty about it, but um <laughs> But, you know, I kind of got a little bit um, um, upset about it because I'm like, these things have literally been happening in Flint for the last 10 years Mm -hmm. and no one cared. Mm -hmm. No one cared. Like, literally, GM left in like 2000, 2001 and y'all were silent. Nobody cared until they start having problems in Detroit. Mm -hmm. Oh, okay, great, great. Like, thank you for not caring about my city Thank you for not caring about us. And I mean, the same things, like the same thing, the same legacy that has like kind of like dogged Flint, like that nobody cares about us is happening now. Like we are telling you, hey, something's wrong with the water. Pay attention to us. And we're just like, "Mm." Mm -hmm. and it's, it's, it's just like, how, how much can you expect like a people to endure?
2: that's it for this episode you can follow brenton on twitter at brenton mock that's b-r-e-n as in nancy t-i-n as in nancy m as in mark o-c-k you can follow talia buford at talia buford t-a-l-i-a-b-u-f-o-r-d you can follow our producers john ketchum at catchcast that's K E T C H C A S T and Channon Kennedy at ck.biz. That's C K D O T B I Z. You can follow my co host, Okoto Aforiata, at K O underscore six one six. As always, I'm Gene Demi. You can hire me at G E E D E E two one five. All right, y'all. Be easy.